クライミングインサイドザマシンメタポッドキャスティングビヨンド。The more I think about what I do with my business, the more I think about the definition of this podcast and what the goal of, of it is. And、uh, every time I come to do a new episode, it seems to have changed.、Um, so, podcasting and beyond. I'll be using my expertise as a podcast producer to bring you a series of podcaster profiles. This will be a series of interviews where I talk to successful long running podcasters about how they do what they do. I'll be asking them questions like how they integrate their podcast with their business, how they develop their audiences, and how they've developed their own style and unique voice. The first podcaster that I'll be talking to is Claire Pales. Claire runs the Security Collective podcast, focusing on a tech and IT audience. She's been running the show for seven seasons now. Claire has got a great attitude about serving the audience and being useful. She's also got some great tips on promotion and recording techniques. So let's get into this interview, and we're going Under the Duna with Claire Pales. Everyone's got different motivations about. Why they do what they do. And I, th- I thought your case is distinctive in as much as it, you know, it's, it seems to connect very closely to your business. The other thing, too, is that there are not a lot of security podcasts out there that focus on anything other than kind of the technical nature of security or the kind of hacks and incidents that are happening around the world. And You know, that's not what keeps people busy every day. What keeps people busy every day is having enough、uh, capability in their teams to service the business as usual of an organization. The incidents might happen to you, a big one might happen to you once a year. And yes, then it's all hands on deck. But I wanted a podcast that talked about day to day life of a security team, not just, well, you know, we've had a huge data breach. So what do we do? So you talked about the book being sort of quite a strategic. Tool for you with the, you know, being a sort of uber business card. Do, do you feel, what, what sort of space do you feel like the podcast f- fills in, in that respect? Like how close, how does it sort of connect with your business strategy? Yeah, I, I guess I don't really have a business strategy. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do have a business strategy. Don't get me wrong. I,、um, I have a business strategy to the extent that. Uh, I have goals and targets of things that I want to achieve, but I don't look at the podcast as a, necessarily as a cash generating activity.、Mm. I look at the podcast as an opportunity to raise my profile. And it's a really good opener for me to connect with people on LinkedIn. When I see CIOs, I can say,、uh, Hi, I've got this podcast. If you would ever be interested in, In being a guest or, or having a conversation, then you know, it'd be great to connect. And so it, it's a good thing like that to sort of warm up cold connections.、Mm-hmm. And I've only ever known of one engagement that has come from my podcast, which is quite a recent one,、right. where the CIO I dealt with said, I got told about your podcast, I listened to you on the podcast, and that's why we're talking now. And that's how I made a bunch of money from them. So the podcast has more than paid for itself just through that one engagement with that company. But 
I, I don't put it in my cash generating activity box. It's something I really love doing and I try to serve the audience based on the feedback I get. Like they love the short nature of it. I never want it to become sort of an hour long. Mm. I try to keep it to 20 minutes but people talk too much. <laughs> you know, I try to keep it really swimming in that lane of teams, leadership, getting the right people into the right seats, that sort of thing. Mm. So how, how do you go about sourcing your your guests for the show? Guests for the show, um, a couple of ways. Some are people that I already know. So I've had uh, previous clients on before. I've had friends on before, peers in the security industry that I've worked with. Um, I have gone out to LinkedIn completely cold. Uh, one season I I got a guy on Upwork for $50 to find me every CIO in Victoria uh-huh. and there was about 100 of them, I think, and I did a reach out to 100 people and said, hey, I run a podcast. If you've got a security team, would be you'd be interested to be a guest? And I filled se- one of the, so season three maybe with people like that. Mm-hmm. I've only ever had one person say no to me to not be on the podcast. I also find people off other podcasts. So I listened to Graham Cowan on someone else's podcast and I was like, oh, I've got to have this guy on my podcast. So I just emailed him cold and said, I heard you on, I think it might have been Purple Playground, which is an HR podcast. I heard you on this podcast. You sound brilliant. This is what I would like to get from a conversation with you for my audience. Mm-hmm. Would you be on my podcast? And he said yes. So I haven't really wanted for guests so far. I've, I've had, yeah, had pretty good success just reaching out to people I know or or on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And what's what's the process when... When you get a you know someone who's positive about coming on, how how do you um, kind of start that conversation about what what topics will be covered and that sort of reassurance of you know, the areas? So it's a bit of a tough one because um, I <laughs> I think you and I have had partly had this conversation before. If I know the person, I don't generally have a screening conversation because. For instance, Anna Libel and I are very close friends. I've known her for 15 years and I don't have to have a screening conversation with her. I know I can write a bunch of questions and she'll answer them and it'll be a comfortable conversation because we know each other. Whereas, and Graham Cowan was the same. We didn't have a screening conversation because I'd heard him previously speak and I'd researched his website to see kind of what his elements were of passion. Mm -hmm. And so I just wrote a bunch of questions. We'd never spoken before the day. And so, uh, I mean, he's a seasoned speaker as well, so it's a little bit different. Mm. But then someone like Laura Staples, who I just interviewed last week, we had a screening call because I've never met her and I didn't really know what her point of difference was. Um, But somebody said to me, she's amazing, you should have her on the podcast. So I listened to her on another podcast, didn't get enough from that. So I screened her where I just asked them a whole bunch of questions about themselves and about what drives them and, you know, about what they're doing at the moment. Mm. And that helps me craft the questions for the podcast. All right. The flip side of that is that often that initial conversation is really, really good content. Yes. And that maybe (laughs) I should just record that. And then there's people like Jackie Lusteau, who I've also known for a long time, but I knew she was going to be nervous. And so that podcast, you know, I mean, the the outcome of that was really based on your quality as a producer because – you know, that really needed carving up to to make Jackie sound the way I know she can be. Right. But she was just, yeah, paralysed by nerves and so she talked mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so I guess I have multiple different processes is the short 
long answer to a short question. I don't, um, I don't have a standard practice. Okay, but then once you've arrived at, um, you, you've, you've identified that, you, you know, they can talk to a particular point and, you know, you feel the, the fit there. Do you share the questions with them prior to the interview? Yes. So I would always share the questions prior because I have some guests who need to get their PR teams to approve the questions. So it's not always as simple as just writing the questions and the guest says yes. Sometimes mm -hmm. they need approval to be on the podcast, approve the questions, and then obviously approve the episode too, which is really approving their answers. Yeah. Um, so I share that with them. And then I also ask them, they fill in a Google form that basically says their name, their title, their organisation, their bio, they give us a photo and there's a lot, an option in there for them to put in anything that I haven't put in the questions that they really want me to ask them about. So mm. one of the guys from this season, he loved the questions I'd given him, but on later reflection he said, actually, could we just chuck in a little bit more about the benefits to whoever the, the receiving party was? So mm. I altered one of my questions so that we included that. So mm. I make sure that the guest gets a say in something that they're particularly passionate about. I want to ask them a question because that always makes people shine. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much the process. Do you find that the guests are supportive in sort of sharing your posts about their episode afterwards? Yeah, they are. Um, so most of them wait for my um, post to come out and then they'll on-share my post on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not a big Twitter person. I do post on Twitter, but it's more... It's literally just that the episode has come out. There's no, um, I don't, I'm not really active on there. Yeah. But my guests usually reshare. Often it's the audiogram. They'll pick that up and push that. Yeah. Um, and the uh, next day when the episode goes live, I do the little um, quote tile and often that will get shared. But, I, I mean, I, I get 100 likes usually on my audiograms. So, you know, if that's all people get out of it, then... Um, I try to pick the most sort of pithy thing to put into those. Mm. You've got two two um, secondary pieces of content that you spin out as as promotional items for each episode: the audiogram and then a quote graphic. Yeah. So the audiogram is usually about ninety seconds, um, and it's I try to pick kind of the most um, important thing that that person said in the twenty minutes. I try and get into that ninety seconds. So it's usually my question and then their response oh, yeah. um, or if I, if their response goes for too long, then I'll cut my question off and just let them speak. And then the quote tile is usually something that lends itself to the title of the, the podcast episode. So the title might be podcast pro tips and then your quote tile would be, um, you know, I honestly believe that blah, 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 whatever your biggest pro tip is, yeah. is it kind of a hook to get people to come and listen. Yeah. I think you probably answered this question. I was just kind of curious about that, like you know, promoting the the listening audience. So, do you find that LinkedIn is your most effective platform? Definitely, definitely. I don't use Instagram. I don't use Facebook because I don't. I've never really trialed them as um, kind of a marketplace for my my services, and because all my clients are really on LinkedIn, I. It didn't really make much sense to me to go elsewhere, Twitter to an extent, but Twitter's really, for me, about reaching uh, an international audience. Um, 
I find on LinkedIn, I, I, I probably only reaching mostly Australians, whereas on, whereas on Twitter, a lot of my followers are outside of Australia, um, yeah. which is interesting. But yeah, LinkedIn, definitely. Oh, and my newsletter as well. So I have a monthly newsletter that okay. I always include sort of what's happening on the podcast. Yeah. So that goes out to my newsletter list. I would imagine you get quite a good, good response from newsletter readers to, to the podcast. I tend to have this group of like 100 people who are on my newsletter list. Uh, my, most of my podcasts within, like Claire's, for example, on Thursday, I think by lunchtime she'd already had 50 downloads and most of mine peak out at about 200 downloads. So the fact that 25% of the downloads are happening as soon as the episode comes out is is good. Yeah. Uh, almost every one of my episodes from, from day one across every season gets listened mm-hmm. to um, each month. So, Right. So you get quite a long tail of, you know, repeat listens when people are presumably discovering the latest one and then going back. Yeah. So um, we just tipped over 8,100 downloads, which at first I didn't think was very much, but given it's such a niche topic and I've only done mm-hmm. 45 episodes, well, I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, well, I think it's... It's that sort of scalable um, goal, really, of what, you know, what do you want it to do? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I definitely have have that people whose podcast I think is doing really well. It's in, you know, numerous charts on Apple and they're kind of going, oh, you know, I've only had whatever, you know, 200 listens this week. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're number five in the you know, Apple uh, Apple chart for whatever your topic is. But I think it's then that difficulty of tracking what happens next, which, you know, on, on say, other types of media, you can track click-throughs and did people buy or did people visit a page or sign up to your, you know, sign up to your newsletter, which is, which is harder to, you know, ascertain when it's, when it's an audio file. But um, I think that's a, that's a healthy sign if you're finding that the older episodes are growing listens you know the more you go on because it shows that there's still value there for for a new audience i've tried to keep it really evergreen it's probably been the last few episodes that i've started to talk about things like remote working and covid because it feels starting to feel like that's going to be the way of the world for a while so i need to acknowledge that that's going on and yeah it's new challenges to people face isn't it so but otherwise, I mean, all the other episodes are really quite evergreen because people are at different, always at different stages of their security team development evolution. So it, it's always going to be of interest to people who are at different points in their evolution to listen to one company who's talking about how they started and another company who's talking about how they reinvented or something like that. So Mm. I don't want to talk about topics that are pertinent to right now because there are other podcasts people can go to to listen to the latest breach or the latest tools or techniques. Um, What I want to talk about is things that people would be able to get benefit out of at any time. I know that you've got a a particular production technique that you use when you're Recording your shows. <laughs> Could you share that? So, <laughs> so part of the reason that I started sitting in my walk-in robe with a doona over my head is because I was not having very good uh, acoustics in my office, for starters. Secondly, when we have a tin roof and I'm, I'm upstairs, so the minute it rains, yeah. 
Um, you you only not only get the rain, but then you get the dripping afterwards. Um, and what I found was when I recorded Claire Picard the second time, I recorded it like that in the walk-in robe with the dinner over my head. And it was the first time ever that you had said to me, wow, this sounds amazing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, now I'm going to have to keep doing that. That's it. You found the solution to making me happy. <laughs> I want to work out the best way to record where I don't have to sit in the walk-in robe under the doona because then I can't see the guest as well because I, I love that on Squadcast how I can see the guest. Yeah. But once I'm in there under the doona, it's pitch black, so I can't – there's no point having my video on. Oh. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I I can understand that now. It's a super common problem here having very kind of lively rooms because mostly rooms are designed for cool. You know, when it's when it's hot, so we've got tiled floors and yeah. kind of rooms where the wind will, will will move through them, which does you know mean there's a lot of hard surfaces. So I've got some uh, software tools that are made to reduce that kind of room ambience um and and take you know hums and that sort of stuff out and i I use those yeah all the time yeah i think it's cool because i also think that people shouldn't be scared of podcasting but often think that they need lots of really expensive equipment and um yeah i mean when we first started out i also think too that the value of the lessons that i've learned like the guy that i used to get to produce it oh yeah it was it was a side hustle for him. He was in America, so I had to wait overnight mm. often to get any response from him. Everything he did was very straightforward and I knew what I was kind of getting um, when I got into the relationship with him. Like it was mm. literally just, you know, make sure the sound is okay. He wasn't a sound engineer. He was literally just a podcast producer, I suppose. Intro and outro and then loaded up on Libsyn and, that was all I was getting. And then, of course, when I had that troublesome <laughs> season where I contacted Beverly and said, oh, my God, the whole season's got this clicking noise through it, then, you know, and then I met you and I was like, wow, like the difference between working with Anthony and right. now working with right. you is incredibly different. But I never would have discovered that if I hadn't have had that problem to solve. I probably would have just kept using him. And I wasn't overly happy, but I didn't know that there was something better. So... Yeah, it's good to learn those lessons as well. Metapod. 